0: Please open your Bibles up to Revelation 13. I also want to remind you, um, if you've not signed up for the Women's Candid Conversations and um, you're interested in doing that, please do that. What a great opportunity that is to not just sit and listen to someone talk about something, but to come and dialogue with each other, to encourage each other, to build each other up as you talk through um, these real issues. Um, And we can help minister to each other in that regard. So that's this coming Saturday. Please don't forget about that and tonight is the first parent and youth night. Parents, we love that you take the mandate seriously. You just aren't parents that just drop your kids off and figure it's the church's responsibility to raise them. You heed the call that it's your responsibility, and we love coming alongside you to do that. So we look forward to seeing you tonight at the parent and youth night tonight. All right, Revelation 13. Well, first in, in the year 1919, there's a German general by the name of Paul von Hindenburg, and he told the German people exactly why they had lost World War I. He said it wasn't because Germany had been beaten honorably on the battlefield by their enemy, but it was because of radicals and other undesirables that were back home who had actually overthrown the Kaiser's monarchy and put a republic in place instead. In fact, Hindenburg said the real reason for the defeat was the German army was stabbed in the back. Here's the reality, though. The German army had thrown everything it had into one last desperate, last-ditch type of effort. And it wasn't working. And quite frankly, they had ran out of steam. And moreover, the revolution that Hindenburg's trying to talk about didn't start with civilians, it started in the German military. This was a huge lie that he was giving them. But this lie was swallowed by Germans who were convinced that if only the troublemakers could be silenced, Germany would become great again. Well, here's the result of that lie. The Nazi party, Adolf Hitler, and the atrocities that were committed by those folks in the name of silencing the troublemakers. When people lie, people die. There are countless examples throughout history of this, from the German generals to Trojan horses, to government agencies endorsing the ingestion of what turned out to be poisonous substances, um, to drivers saying, no, I haven't had too much to drink, I'm good. When people lie, people die. And last week in Revelation 12, We saw that Satan waged war against God and he lost spectacularly. He was defeated. The dragon, definitively defeated, unable to overcome Christ in his work of salvation. The accuser had been thrown down. Yet, though his fate is sealed, this defeated foe, his time's short, but he's still at work. And we see chapter 12 end with this furious dragon going off to wage war against those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, this morning as we continue into chapter 13, we're gonna see exactly how this dragon wages war. 12 told us he was going to wage war, 13 tells us how he does that. And we're gonna see his insidious tactics, his desperate yet effective methods to persecute Christ's followers, and it can be summed up very simply in this way. Lies, lies, and more lies. That's really how we can sum up the tactics of the enemy. Yet we're also gonna see that this defeated foes endeavors are not ultimate. They're not incapable of being resisted. We're gonna see that God provides a promise of protection for His children. Specifically, here's what we'll see, faith, Endurance and wisdom, that's the heavenly mandate for surviving the onslaught of Satan's war against you. Let me say it again. Faith, endurance, and wisdom is the heavenly mandate for surviving the onslaught of Satan's war against you. And let's look at God's holy word and let's read it together. We're going to start with the last verse of Revelation 12 and read all the way through 13. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. I had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. That's the Lord's holy word. In this chapter, we see two beasts brought forth to do the dragon's dirty work. Um, Let's start by looking at the first beast, the beast from the sea. It's the first point today. Now this first beast rises up from the sea, and there's interesting descriptors here in these first two verses. The beast had 10 horns. It had seven heads, 10 diadems, blasphemous names on its head. It was like a leopard. It had feet like a bear's, a mouth like a lion. And in the last part of verse two, we see that this beast had been given power. It had been given authority and a throne of the dragon. And furthermore, one of its heads seemed to have been wounded mortally, but it was healed. Now this is a disturbingly terrifying monster described here when you really think about this. But it's more than just a mere mirage of a monster. It had been given power and authority. Jim Hamilton observes that Satan's beast here is a grotesque and unnatural blend of brutal and bloodthirsty animals of prey. And that's what Satan is like. Elliot described last week when he was preaching the significance of the horns and the heads and the diadems of the dragon, and this beast has the exact same things. We've settled along that to properly understand Revelation, you need to be able to properly understand the Old Testament because it's painted with the brush of the Old Testament. In fact, the 23 verses we're covering today have 29 Old Testament allusions in them. The Old Testament is critical to our understanding of this text today. And Daniel 7 is especially critical to understanding this first beast. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not gonna have you turn to Daniel 7, but let me just summarize a very high level. Daniel 7, we see the Ancient of Days invest the Son of Man with eternal dominion. Um, this is God the Father, sharing his power and authority with Christ. Now, additionally, there's four beasts that are described in Daniel 7, and these beasts oppress the people of God. These four beasts were Gentile kingdoms that would actually wield power over the people of God. Specifically, they were the Chaldeans, the Medes, the Persians, and Rome. And Rome was measurably worse than all of the others. Now, the original audience of of this book we're studying uh, would be very familiar with the Roman oppression because they're smack dab in the middle of it. They're experiencing that oppression as they are reading this letter. This letter is being read to them. In fact, because of that, some commentators interpret this passage of this first beast to refer to the Roman Empire and especially to Nero, who was leading that. But other commentators, as well as myself, think that that's too narrow of an interpretation for this passage. You see, the vision John is having here combines all four beasts from Daniel 7 into one beast. And the ESV Study Bible notes this. It says, as the beasts of Daniel 7 symbolize kingdoms, this composite beast represents every human empire. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and their successors that demand absolute allegiance and trust, enforcing its demand with coercion. This beast has blasphemous names on its head. It's it's proclaiming false truths about itself. And the fact that they're blasphemous indicates that these claims of ultimate authority and ultimate truth Uh, those should only be associated with the one true God. This beast is overtly spewing lies and trying to pass itself off as God. And furthermore, this beast seemed to have been healed from a mortal wound, and, and the people are marveling at it. Hear this, Satan's attempt to wage war starts with creating a false Christ something other than the true conquering king for the people to worship. See, the wound on this fake Savior points back to Genesis 3.15 where it's prophesied after the fall that a serpent crusher is going to come and bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. This beast, created in the image of the dragon, carries the fatal wound delivered by the promised Savior Christ. And Christ has delivered a fatal blow, but the serpent is still allowed for a short time to wage war. And throughout history, this beast keeps coming back. There's actually little mention of the dragon in Revelation 13. He disguises himself instead to work through these human instruments and institutions. Satan works through governments and kingdoms and systems and leaders, and we see it's working. The dragon is so convincing at camouflaging his defeat as victory, he's so convincing at that, that everyone who's not sealed by the lamb like we saw back in chapter seven, they're amazed. The people are successfully tricked, marveling and following this beast. Look again at verse four. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like this beast? Who can fight against it? Don't miss this. Following and worshiping the beast is equivalent to worshiping the dragon. They're the same. And the people's proclamation here is a mockery of Exodus 15, 11. Exodus 15, 11 is just after the Israelites have crossed the Red Sea, having been delivered from captivity in Egypt, often referred to as kind of a gospel of the Old Testament. And a song is sung by the Israelites. These words mock that song. Do you see what Satan's doing here? False Christ, false worship, twisting what's been done. The image bearer of the dragon, is imitating the image-bearer of God, the victorious Christ, with lies, lies, and more lies. And in verses five through 10, we see this beast is attacking the true followers of Christ, uttering haughty and blasphemous lies. And there's basically three aspects we can categorize these lies into. It's the beast's pride in exalting himself above God, it's his deceptive powers suggesting that he's greater than God. And it's his blasphemy in defaming God's name and God's people. So let's just pause for a second and consider this very simple application. When a person or an entity is exalting himself above God, suggesting that their power is greater than God's and defaming his name and his people, That's the spirit of this beast. This is not just an innocent misunderstanding of reality someone's having. This is an active embracing of the overt lies of the defeated foe waging war on man. And make no mistake, cozying up with these blasphemies is the desired goal of the dragon, and it's the path to eternal death. But let's not neglect to notice a couple of critical constraints that are on this beast. First, we see in verses 5 and 7, this beast can only do what it's allowed to do. It claims ultimate authority, but it is under authority. It's under a greater authority, the authority of God. And secondly, this beast is only allowed to do this for 42 months. Here we see the Three and a half years, the 1,260 days that we've seen multiple times already in Revelation. This is the period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. The beast time to wage war and utter lies is constrained by God. He can only do what he's allowed to do by the true sovereign king. God is not out of control in that moment. Now last week, Eliot spoke in detail about how God has ordained his people to walk in his path of victory through suffering. Suffering is a reality for followers of Christ, but we can find encouragement that the time of suffering is constrained. It's limited, it is finite, and it will not be eternal. It will not be eternal. Persecution and martyrdom, those are real but so is God's preservation and protection. Look at verse eight. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life will be preserved. And notice when those names were written before the foundation of the world. God has purposed this. He's purposed it before the foundation of the world to preserve those he saves. Persecution is promised and ultimate protection is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. It's a sure thing. Now further expounding on this distinction between these beast worshipers and these Christ worshipers, Leon Morris writes this. He says, It is true that these people have set themselves in opposition to God. It is true that they are willing worshipers of the beast, but the significant thing is that their names have not been written in the book of life. John wants his little handful of persecuted Christians to see that the thing that matters is the sovereignty of God, not the power of evil. When a man's name is written in the book of life, he will not be forgotten. His place is secure. The thing that matters most is the sovereignty of God, not the power of evil. We must remember the reality. Christ has won. He's won. The victory's secure. We saw that in Revelation 12. The victory's secure. And then the end of verse 10 instructs Christ followers and specifically what they are called to do. The end of verse 10 says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Our response, our calling is to faith and endurance. Faith, not the way popular culture uses it where faith's just this nebulous thing. I I practice faith. I have faith. I look for faith. If faith needs an object, you need to have faith in something. We have faith in God, that's what we're called to do. We're called to believe and trust in the truth-telling of the victorious Christ and not the lies of the defeated beast. We're called to not give up in the face of adversity, to not acquiesce to the flow of the culture around us so we can fit in with others we wanna be like or achieve the perceived success that's defined by our own selfish desires or by a culture that exalts itself or counterfeits of Satan as ultimate. Ultimate truth is only found in Christ, nowhere else. Nowhere else is ultimate truth found. Rather, we're called to keep on keeping on. That's what we're called to do. Endurance, we're called to resist the evil one, hold fast to the truth revealed by our Savior and His Word. We must resolve to not give up under adversity. No turning back, as we sang today. To not cave in to the relentless pressures of the lies that are bombarding us hour after hour, day after day. We must not forget the reality that's revealed to us in this book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. C.J. Mahaney says this, Revelation unveils to us the world as it really is, so that we might endure rather than faint in suffering, and trust God rather than be dismayed by suffering. See, God gives grace to his people to endure as he preserves them for a blessed eternity. Faith and endurance. I'm sure Martin Luther was thinking of this reality when he penned these lines in his famous hymn. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. What a great proclamation of faith and endurance. Now, if you're here this morning and you're fearful, we've already talked about this some today. As 1 Peter 3, 6 says, you don't need to fear what is frightening. We're not talking about a, oh, that's not scary at all type of faith. That's not truth. Some things are really scary. We're called to not fear what is frightening. Instead, trust in God. We replace our fear with faith in God's power and rule over our lives and everything, including the evil that sets itself against us. We do not need to fear, not because we are anything special but because our God is, and He has promised, and He is always faithful. God is working out His perfect plan for the cosmos. Admittedly, it looks different than what Christopher's perfect plan would be, but that's a good thing, just so you know. We're called to trust in God's ability to do this thing. We're called to trust in His wisdom to do it wisely and perfectly, and we're called to trust in His good character to do it with unceasing love to his children. Unceasing, steadfast love. Trusting in these things, we hold on to him as he meets every need we have according to the riches and glory that are in Christ Jesus. Faith and endurance. That's our call in response to this first beast. So this first beast we saw is this parody of Christ boldly and overtly spewing lies, demanding allegiance, receiving worship. The second beast is also spewing lies, but it does it in a much different manner. And in some ways, it's an even more dangerous manner. second point today is this, the beast from the land. Now, as we read in verse 11, there's this second beast that rises up out of the land, out of the earth, and its purpose is different From the first beast. The first beast urged everyone to worship itself. Verse 12 says, the second beast exercises all the authority of the first beast to make the earth and its habitants worship the first beast. Okay, so this beast is performing, performing signs and wonders and it's thereby deceiving people to worship this first beast. Where the first beast was overt and brash and right out there in your face, this beast is seductive. It's deceptive, it's tricky. It isn't as obvious as the first beast. Now verse 11, see, it says it looks like a lamb, but has the voice of a dragon. It looks innocent, but it's speaking the lies of the dragon. Jesus warned us in Matthew seven fifteen about ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing that would seek to devour. It's when something appears harmless, but in reality, it's quite the opposite. If wolves in sheep's clothing are dangerous, like how much worse would a dragon in sheep's clothing be? This beast in its innocent, harmless-seeming, embracingly cuddly appearance, it's the most vile and deadly of beings, parading around, doing marvelous things for all the people for the purpose of tricking them to worship the first beast, to follow a false savior, a false Christ, a false messiah. It's important we do not miss all the religious imagery that's in this section of this chapter. There are three other times in Revelation where this beast is actually called the false prophet. And this land beast, hear this, it's the religiously oriented accomplice of the first beast. The first beast is in your face, The second one is this religiously oriented helper, this this accomplice to accomplish what the first beast is trying to do. Dennis Johnson says this, he says, "'Whereas the power of the first beast and its boastful pride is overt and coercive, the influence of the second is covert and deceiving. It's like a counterfeit John the Baptist, simulating but not sharing the spirit and power of Elijah. Like Elijah at Carmel, the false prophet calls fire to fall from heaven, but he uses this wonder to promote worship of the beast rather than calling the peoples to worship the true God as Elijah did. There's also this contrast, if we remember back in Revelation 11 about the two witnesses um, that had fire coming from their mouth. The witnesses were pouring forth truth from their mouths. This beast is counterfeiting God's judgments with lies intended to bolster its credibility while being evil to the core. Looks good on the outside, deadly on the inside. There's even the description in verse 15 that this beast was permitted to give breath to the image of the first beast. Now just think for a second. What do we see in Scripture that gives breath to images? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does that. Do not miss the audacity and the insidiousness of satan's war plan the dragon just like the father incarnates an image bearer that portrays itself as a false christ followed by a false prophet giving breath and testifying to the supremeness of the first beast while performing impressive signs and wonders do you see that satan is lying to the world presenting an unholy trinity a mockery a parody, a spoof of the one true God for the sole purpose of robbing God of the glory and worship due his name and ultimately to destroy the worshipers he so craftily deceives. Satan knows he is defeated and he is trying to do as much damage as he can before he's fully down for the count, taking as many people as he can dupe with him. Furthermore, like this like the first beast represented these earthly kingdoms throughout the ages, the second beast clearly represents false teachers from within. This attack is coming from within the walls of the church. And verse 15 says that this beast can cause those who do not worship the image of the first beast to be slain. Greg Beale says this. He says, the second beast is a counterfeit of the church and the spirit who empowers and indwells it. That an inside threat by a false apostle is alluded to is apparent from noticing that the second beast's authority is modeled on the authoritative credentials of Christ's apostles. He's a successor to his master in both ministry and authority. Folks, this is friendly fire. This is people claiming to be part of the church while in reinforcing or propagating the lies of the enemy. It is reminiscent of the synagogue of Satan. Do you remember that from the letters in chapters two and three? We saw synagogue of Satan, we saw false prophets and false teachers. False teachers within the church who are inspiring and dictating compromise with the culture's idolatrous institutions and therefore leading people to slaughter. Greg Beale adds that when purported Christian teachers take their primary cues from the surrounding culture instead of from God's Word, they corrupt the covenant community spiritually by encouraging it to live by norms and a faith that ultimately oppose the reign of God in Christ. One does not have to search very long or hard to see this happening in the American evangelical church. And it's not just the teachers who are tempted to take their cues from the culture we can be too these lies can be so appealing to our sinful desires our sinful selfish ambitions and the consequences they're deadly they're deadly and no i'm not being over dramatic here the beast Marks the followers of the first beast, making it so that those without the mark may not be able to transact business, they can't function normally in daily society. And this is not a future thing to the original readers of this. This distinction between the beast people and God's people is a present reality for them and for us. This is not a physical mark, you see, it's a spiritual mark. This mark described in Revelation 13, it's a sign of ownership to the worldly systems and beliefs. It's allegiance to the beast of the dragon, and the result is spiritual death. Keeping consistent with the devil's MO, this mark is a counterfeit. It's a perverted imitation of what Christ has already done for His people at salvation. We saw again in Revelation 7 how He seals His people. Christ marks those He's saved as belonging to him. This is the enemy saying, I'm marking these people as belonging to me. Lies, lies, more lies. All Satan does is take what Jesus has done and twist it, perverts it. He spews lies and half-truths, which let's be honest, half-truths are untruths. And he comes at you from both sides, both overt, bold proclamations and mandates of obedience and deceptive, seductive lies and enticements from those who it would be easy to presume are telling the truth because of a title they have or a building they're speaking in. Verse 18 tells us exactly what is required here. Look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Wisdom. Wisdom is essential. We must discern. We must be able to distinguish lies from truths so we know what to do with them, whether to receive them or reject them. Now, time is not going to permit me to do an exhaustive explanation of 666, the number of the beast. I know some of you are going to be very disappointed about that. You've probably been eagerly waiting for me to get to this, but I'm going to quickly explain this. But it's important that as you look in different areas of Revelation, there's things we like to really dive into, and it's not bad to dive into them, but we don't want to lose the main pastoral purpose of why God has put this in his word here. And We've seen here in this section that pastoral purpose is this call for wisdom and discernment. But in short, this number does not refer to a specific person. Some have said that if you translate the, um, if you take the words Nero Caesar, and you take them in the Greek, and then you translate them to Hebrew, and then you take those Hebrew letters and put them into numbers, that the numbers will add up and total six six six. Well, there's actually hundreds of names that people have found ways to do that with, including names like Hitler and others. See, the more likely and consistent with the context of this chapter interpretation is that once again, we see Satan creating counterfeits which fall short of God's perfection. See, in scripture numerology, we've already talked about um, how seven is the number of divine completeness and. Six is the number of man. That's even stated in this text. 666 is a mark symbolizing falling short of God's holy perfection and reflecting the ownership and control of the thoughts of the beast followers. See, where God is holy, 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 this is unholy, unholy, unholy. One commentator says that this mark is the completeness of sinful incompleteness. This mark is the completeness of sinful incompleteness. As I mentioned earlier, this mark is contrasted, it's a counterfeit of what we're about to see again in the first verse of chapter 14. Christ's followers have a seal on their forehead. Christ's followers are marked. In chapter 13, we see the beast followers are marked as well. Now listen here, here's the reality. Everyone is marked. Let me say it again. Every person in this room is marked. The real question is which mark do you have? Are you sealed by Christ through faith in him, or sealed by the beast trusting in something other than Christ? The sober warning of this chapter is that it can be easy to be deceived. And that's why wisdom is required. Friends, we must be discerning. We must not be taken in by falsehood when Christ has given us the means to not be fooled. We must grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding to see through this deceptive and imperfect nature of the beast, resist conformity to the parody of perfection that is falling short of God's unwavering truth. And quite simply, we grow in wisdom and understanding through studying God's Word. See, when the Secret Service is training folks on how to recognize counterfeit money, they don't do what might, you might think would be obvious to do. They don't like study all these counterfeits so they can recognize them. Quite frankly, there's too many of them. But what they do is they get really familiar with the real thing. They study the real thing so closely that any deviation from it becomes glaringly obvious to them. See, study God's Word. Don't waste time studying all the counterfeits that are out there. Invest your time in studying the real thing. Become so familiar with God's truth that any counterfeit is glaringly obvious. Don't neglect the sword of the Spirit that is used to fight the lies of this desperate deceiver. If you need help with this, there are people and resources we can connect you with here in this local body to help you grow in your study of the Bible. It is essential and critical. Ask your community group or your D group for accountability and better yet, do this together with them. Spiritual warfare, this is important, spiritual warfare is not just something that happens when things get hard. It's not like spiritual warfare is not going on and then life gets hard and then spiritual warfare starts. That's not the way that works. The enemy is not waiting to attack you until you decide whether or not you want to pick up the weapon that God's given you to fend off him. The dragon does not wait for your permission to commence his plans to try and slaughter you. Every moment of the Christian walk is spiritual warfare as God's kingdom advances and Satan tries to resist it. Every moment is spiritual warfare. Yes, there are times where the reality of that is more palpable to us, but every moment, every moment is this. Do not be deceived into complacency. There is no parlay. There are no time outs in this war. Satan is not a fair fighter. He doesn't be like, oh, you need a breath? Let me know when you're ready again. That's not how he fights. Chapter 13 calls the true believers to neutralize the evil weapons of the defeated dragon through faith, endurance, and wisdom. And it's no accident that the first verses of the next chapter are placed where they are. Let's look very quickly at the first few verses of Revelation 14. except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. We've already talked about the 144,000 representing the completeness of those whose God is saving. What a glorious picture we see here. What an encouragement to saints who are in the midst of intense spiritual warfare and they're called to faith, endurance, and wisdom. And here the Lord gives us yet another glimpse, another reminder of the victory of the Lamb of God and His people. Jesus is here with every one of the people He has redeemed. Not a single person saved by Christ is missing here, and they are all marked as His. Every single one, let me say it again, every single person trusting in Christ is finding Him faithful. He has preserved every single one. Everyone made it to the end. No one left behind. Every persecuted, every martyred saint of God, every suffering saint bought by the blood of Jesus Christ is rejoicing in heaven, celebrating the Savior. Their sins have been washed clean by Jesus and they are found blameless before Him, completely redeemed. This is good news. If you're struggling, if you're a follower of Christ and you're wondering, am I gonna make it? Yes, you are, because Christ has ordained that to happen. Every single one makes it to the end. So have faith, have endurance, have wisdom to discern. Now, there are other places in Revelation where we are gonna dive a lot more deeply into this glorious eternal joy. But how kind of the Lord to give his war-weary, persecuted followers another glimpse, a glimpse of where they are headed. This is what is waiting at the end of the war. Victory is secure. See, in this apocalyptic account, God is warning his people of the defeated dragon's desperate yet deadly devices that are deployed in the war waged on them. He's exposing how this war is carried out through the institutions of the governments of the earth and through the seduction of false religious teachers, compelling people to believe doctrines of lies, lies, and more lies. Yet he's called his people to keep the faith and press on in whatever this war brings with endurance, exercising spiritual wisdom and discernment to separate the truth from the lies, never forgetting, never forgetting the glimpse of the prize awaiting the people, the Savior himself. That's what's waiting. That's who's waiting. Robbie, can you come on up, please? I want to wrap up here with just a couple of quick applications for us to consider. First, I asked this earlier. Which mark do you have? Where's your allegiance? Does God reign supreme in your life or just when it's convenient for you or serves your kingdom purposes? Are you rationalizing sin in your life instead of running to the only one who can wash you clean from that sin? And give you the everlasting hope you're looking for. We saw in Kelly Griffin's Realm Post uh, this past week how quickly life on this side of eternity can be over, where she described family members of some of their neighbors that they had seen just that morning. And then they were killed tragically in a car accident later that day. We don't know when this is gonna end. Please do not delay. Christ can place his mark on you. There is still hope while you breathe to turn and put your faith completely in Christ. If you know you've been yielding to the dragon's influence, do that today, don't delay. If you're unsure of what mark you have and wanna talk about that, talk with me, talk with another pastor, talk with somebody who brought you today before you leave today. This is important and timely for you. Now for those of you who are confident, you know, you have assurance that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The application for you is really clear in this text. We've been talking about it all morning. Have faith. Continue to believe and trust in God. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. He will complete the work that He started in you. He will do it. Endure. Keep on keeping on. Don't give up. God is protecting your soul. Every one of his children will make it to the end in heaven with him. He makes sure of it. And exercise wisdom. Grow in your wisdom and discernment to distinguish lies from truth by getting really familiar with the real thing. God has provided the means for us to grow in all of these things, it's His Word. And in addition to studying God's Word, I'd also add that seeking counsel from other believers is really critical. See, other believers can help you discern truth from lies. You were never expected to walk this Christian life on your own. You've heard me say it from up here before. Lone Ranger Christianity is not biblical Christianity. Study the Word together. Talk about Jesus with each other. Encourage each other with the truth you are reading from God's Word as you help each other endure to the end. Faith, endurance, and wisdom is the heavenly mandate for surviving the onslaught of Satan's war against you. Be encouraged, redeemed, that no matter how crafty, no matter how insidious the schemes of the devil are, he's on a leash. He's on a leash for a finite time and he has an inevitable doom. He has lost. Jesus has won.